Welcome to The Other Coast, a podcast detailing the Malifaux meta in Los Angeles. My name is Jeff, and with me here is another SoCal player, Colgan. Hey, everyone. Hey, Colgan. So tonight we are going to talk about why we lose games. I think we probably could have titled this maybe some ideas on how to improve, uh, but the why you lose at Malifaux is a better clickbait title. So I think that's why we decided to go with it. Um, yeah, I guess we could also call it, call it just like the average Malifaux experience. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe some people more than others find that applicable. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I know I definitely would though, so I can't, I can't say it with the implication that it would not include me. Uh, so why don't we just start off why we lose these these games and why we lose games in Malfo and and we've kind of structured this to be kind of chronological in the sense of uh relative to a Malfo game so you know we have some some things happen before the table some things happen when you're at the table before the game some things in the game and and then some things even after the game has already been lost uh that may impact future games and so I'll just start us off in our kind of pre pre-game category in in you know, this is, you're not at the table, you're not actually playing anyone, you may not even be scheduled to play anyone, but this is still a period in which you can lose games or put yourself on, on the back foot or, you know, not improve your chances to win, and that's by not improving your model and your scheme knowledge. Skolian, can you tell us kind of why this matters? So I feel like a big thing for this, because schemes are kind of randomized, once you have that list, you need to, first of all, understand like what schemes are actually possible to score considering your crew, because there are definitely a lot of schemes that I think are almost impossible to score without the right models or the right keyword. So I feel like the, the biggest thing that kind of comes to mind is research mission. If you're not able to actually place some other marker type besides scheme markers reliably, it becomes a lot harder to be able to like dictate where that scoring happens and your opponent has a lot more opportunities to interfere with it. But you know, there's other things like detonate charges. It could be a great choice for you if you have a way of dropping scheme markers outside of the interact action. But trying to score that with just normal interact actions, considering each uh, scheme marker needs to be within two inches of the same target and you can't take an interact within four or you can't place a scheme marker within interact actions within four inches of another friendly scheme marker really limits like where you can place that in order to score it. If you don't understand, you know, how your opponent can score or how your crew or your keyword can even score into a lot of these games, that's going to severely handicap you when you're trying to put together your list or really trying to understand how the flow of the game will be once you actually get into the game. Right, and I actually think that model knowledge is is a component of game skill, and because Malfo is a game of of skill, the better player should win. And I, you know, I think it's it's perfectly fair that a player with more knowledge about the game has a better chance to win the game. But I think that model knowledge is one of the most significant gaps between experienced players and inexperienced players. Not necessarily strong and weak players. You can be more experienced and still be kind of a weaker player than than a newer player. 
I, I know for myself that, that this is true. There are players who've been playing less Malifaux um, or Malifaux for a shorter period, period of time, and they're still better players than me. <clears throat> but <laughs> but model knowledge, first of all, is something that anyone can do to improve. If, if, you're, if you're newer and you're struggling, learning more about the models and becoming just comfortable with the scheme and strategy requirements you don't need an opponent. You don't need to be at the game store, right? All you need is the app or the rule book or the cards and just some time to peruse. And And it might seem a hard sell to say, if you want to be good at Malifaux, you have to do homework. <laughs> um, when there's games like 40K where you just show up and roll dice. But if what you're looking for is a more demanding play experience, you know, a play experience where skill does matter uh then it's it's gonna it, it shouldn't be a, a big surprise to you that developing these skills takes time but has rewards or has pays dividends at the game so i would just really and and i know how it sounds right like just spend a couple minutes reading cards or or, or whatever right like who's who's got time to put that into their life but if malifaux is a game that you enjoy and you're finding yourself struggling a bit at the game table, becoming more familiar with models and with the schemes and strategies and the rules could really help out. Yeah, I remember like the first time I played against someone and they're running like a keyword or a crew I was super familiar with. It felt like a completely different game to me because like every activation, every movement, like I already knew kind of what, you know, what their models could accomplish, what they could be trying to do. And like, just based on how they're moving things, it's a lot easier to determine what schemes they're going for. Because it's like, well, these are the possible things they can do. And it's like, I would know, you know, like the threat range, whether or not they could even threaten my schemes and stuff like that. And it was, it was kind of a nice feeling being able to play with so much confidence because it's like, okay, they're like 14 inches away. They have abs- This model has no way of getting to me and they do not have any of the support models that would allow them to extend their threat range. Yeah, aside from all of the practical benefits in terms of win-loss that uh, improving your knowledge about the models and the schemes and the rules can, can provide, yes, you are going to see you'll win more often if, if you understand those things to a better degree. But as as you mentioned, it just becomes easier to play the game. And I know, you know, we've talked about how we still kind of find Malifaux sort of a draining experience. I mean, it's fun, but it's it, it there is a mental load there. It's so much worse when you don't know anything about what your opponent's crew can do, or if you have to constantly be checking the scheme requirements to to just know whether or not what you're trying to do is right. If if you can play from that that position of confidence that you mentioned, the game is is much less taxing. Yeah. So then I guess, is there anything else you wanted to add to like kind of the pre-pre-game model and scheme knowledge? Uh, well, I would just like to say one last thing. If you came to Malifaux from a demo, you learned, um, you, you didn't know anything about the rules, you just showed up and, and you played and someone else taught you the rules. Uh, and I think this is a way maybe a lot of people get introduced to Malifaux, or at least in our local meta, it's the way a lot of people have been introduced to Malifaux. Understand that the demoer has not taught you everything about the game. In fact, it's counterproductive to their process 
to sit there and and like break down the minutia of the actual rules. So the demo is no substitute for reading the rules for yourself. Now, what the demo does do is it will provide you with context so that when you read the rules, you're already going to be familiar with a lot of these concepts and things are going to become clearer to you and probably much easier to you. But just because you've played a demo, you should definitely, definitely read the rules. Definitely agree. There's going to be times where just understanding exactly how like generic actions or how certain line of sight rules resolve will actually help you a lot strategically in the game and knowing where you can actually safely place your models. Yeah, and the demoer may have gotten something wrong. You know, Malifaux is a, a complicated game. It's been set on, on, I think it was Third Floor Wars, but could have been another podcast or could have been set on multiple podcasts. Uh, they, there's never been a game of Malifaux that was perfectly played, that everything was resolved 100% correctly. And and I, I believe it, because there's a lot that goes on in this game. And the demoer may not have always explained all of your options at every moment, just because, again, it, it's counterproductive to the demo experience to go into incredible minutiae, especially if, if it's a really kitty corner case or if it wasn't going to change things. But just knowing what's possible under the rules is is going to be pretty helpful to playing the game in the future mm-hmm. all right so moving on from like this sort of pre pre-game stage where you know it doesn't necessarily relate to any sort of planned game and now move moving on to sort of the pre-game so you've agreed to play with someone else and and you're going through the the process of generating the game on the app or whatever so this is kind of you know where we're at in the the, the crew building and the deployment selection all, all these kinds of things so Kogan, what is like one thing that comes to mind that maybe is is a reason why you might lose games or go into a game on the back foot in this sort of pre-game period? For me, there's definitely sort of like this mental game thing. I I've been trying to get better about it, but I know when I first started playing, you know, because I'd never played Malifaux before, and I knew that you and Jim had quite a bit of experience. You guys like played second edition and you know, you guys taught me the game. So I know for like my first few games, I was just always going in with like the mindset, like, all right, I'm just going to lose. Like, there's nothing I can do about it. It's just going to happen. And it probably closed off how I looked at the game because I wasn't really thinking about, all right, what can they actually do with these models? What am I trying to avoid? What am I trying to accomplish? It was just kind of like, okay, I'm going to move here and do this. But like, all right, this guy's probably going to die no matter what I do. Or just be like, I'd kind of give up on things or like, I guess, resign myself to a loss before I was even actually at that point in the game. And it just caused me to like really overestimate threats or like overestimate the ability for you guys to react or to predict what I was going to do during the game. Right. I I could definitely see that. And, you know, I think if you are... Uh, if you do come into the game with a sort of pessimistic expectation, you will find ways on the table to realize that expectation. And I know, you know, when you play on Vassal, um, whether it's uh, online, you, sorry, whether it's in a tournament or just in a pickup game, you can play against the strongest players in the world. And and maybe if you don't really follow 
a tournament results or, you know, who shows up on these podcasts or, you know, not our podcast so much, but, you know, the other <laughs> the other podcasts. If you don't really follow Malifaux very closely, maybe, maybe you don't really know who these players are. But if you do and, and you're like, oh, wow, you know, I'm, I'm playing the, the number one guild player uh, in the world. You can you can definitely put yourself into a box before the game begins. So yeah, I think you should have respect for your opponent. You shouldn't be contemptuous of them and and just assume that you're going to blow them off the board. But at the same time, you shouldn't let them cow cow you. You know, make your plan, uh, stick to your plan, and uh, just they're human too. They flip cards one at a time, and they've got a black joker in the deck just like you do. What's another thing that um, maybe might cause you to to lose a game before it started? I, I know one thing we discussed were the idea of lock lists. I feel mm-hmm. like you might be able to elucidate this a bit better, considering you ran the exact same CR7 crew through an entire tournament. Uh, yeah, uh, I did do that. Um, <laughs> okay, yes. So Malifaux uh, is explicitly not a game where you're supposed to just play whatever you want. Now, you totally can, right? And we've kind of mentioned my expectation for a lot of casual players, and at least, you know, what I've seen at, at, at our store and what I believe to be true at other stores, is that there are many players, some of them are newer players, and other players just kind of have this preference. They're going to play what they want to play. They approach it more like 40K, which is that kind of game, which is the sort of game where you're supposed to be able to play any army against any other army into any mission. But in Malifaux, that is explicitly not true. You see the deployment and you see the strategy and you see the schemes before you pick anything about your crew. And that knowledge is supposed to influence your crew selection. And so if you're not taking advantage of that information and your opponent is, that is probably going to put you on the back foot unless coincidentally you happen to be playing something that just perfectly matches both that pool and your opponent's faction and your opponent's master. Um, which are all things that you would know before you built your actual list. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, as as a kind of anecdote, I was playing uh, Ledslat. I think that's how that's pronounced. He's a very strong guild player during the, the Vassal World series. I forget which month it was. It was a month where my official record was actually really bad. I, I think I went, yeah, zero wins, two losses, and a tie. But actually, for various reasons, my, my actual record at the table was one, one, and one. So... Not as bad as as the num as the official numbers ended up showing, but still, you know, nothing to to write home about. Uh, but in my game against uh, Ledslat, who is a very strong player, I would I'd be already behind against him, no matter what I did, you know, in, just in terms of skill gap. But I, you know, I just brought a locked list. I I'd been messing around with this idea of using a guardian in Sonya's crew to like throw models around and and like you know to kind of see where they would be at at the end of that and so yeah that's just the the list i picked and i didn't i didn't consider the the scheme i didn't consider strategy i didn't consider what my opponent was running anything and then just you know he ran zoraida um because i think he was trying never going out for for this event and sonia's list has a great model in the spell eater against zoraida because they just they cannot be obeyed because they they eat all of the masks um i brought a four willpower guardian who ended up being obeyed into into killing my my guild steward? Yeah, you know, I just I, I didn't consider anything about the game or about my opponent's choices when I picked my list, and that's not why I lost, right? Or or it's not like a but for 
uh, doing that, I would have won the game situation. But why put yourself at that disadvantage at the start? Right. If your intent is to win the game, which is usually how this will work, you're going to want to make sure that you're setting yourself up to win at every stage you possibly can. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I definitely agree. And I think also these things that happen before uh, the game, either in like the pre-pre-game or, you know, the things that are they're part of the game setup, but you haven't like moved any models or flipped any cards. These things that happen are definitely significant to the outcome, but they're also, they're, I think they're harder to see when you're trying to break down what happened in the game or, or why you lost the game. Because oftentimes, at least for me, my game analysis is usually centered on the game, uh, right? Like on 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 the game play, and I might, you know, kind of forget to review these pregame steps that still were influential in in the game's outcome. Yeah, I think it's very easy to get really tunnel vision and focus on like, all right, this is how I'm going to score strategy. This is how I'm going to score schemes, and you know, you get so wrapped up in what you're doing, you kind of forget that your opponent is in the game and is definitely invested in you not scoring a full eight points. Uh, yeah, yeah. All right, so uh, locked list. I think we've we've uh, done a good job of covering that. What's what's another? I mean, what's something else you can do before the game that might put you at a disadvantage? Yeah. So scheme selection. We we kind of covered this in pre pre game, but this is where that pre pre game knowledge is going to <laughs> start helping out a little bit when you see those five schemes like thrown on and being able to accurately assess like which ones are advantageous for you which ones are advantageous for your opponent and you know like what you should be looking at scoring what's a realistic you know i guess score that you can expect from the schemes like are you going to be able to get the reveal and the end game are you just going to get the reveal does it make more sense with like what you brought or what your opponent brought to focus more on denial than actually trying to secure as many points as you possibly can. And, you know, I think this is where understanding what your crew does well and like which models you can sub out for in your faction in order to make certain schemes more accessible. So, you know, I mentioned like detonate charges earlier like when I'm playing, I've been playing a lot of 10 Thunders recently, but when I'm playing like um, Asami and the Oni crew, like, yeah, I can get a lot of free interacts, but since I don't really, well, I guess, oh no, I guess there's the yokai. Shit, this is where my pre-pre-game knowledge needs to go. <laughs> um, all right, we'll just, we'll just scratch that part. Anyways, but knowing like which models you have available to you. So I guess now, see like this pre-pre-game, next game, it's going to come off the top of my head. But knowing that, like, I could use this yokai to kind of get that interact while engaged. Actually, oh, because that's still blocked. Fuck, I'm just running in circles now. (laughs) This is my favorite part of the episode. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so like, okay, with yokai, I can interact on my engage, but because it's still an interact action, I can't place that within four inches of another friendly scheme marker. So it makes detonate charge a, a lot harder to score because I need two scheme markers within two inches of the same enemy model and having that four inch that four inch requirement from knowing the rules and remembering shit about my models makes it much more difficult to score whereas if i'm running lynch and the honeypot crew having kitty with a bonus action where she just drops a scheme marker makes it so that she can very easily score that herself 
in addition to having being incorporeal, having six inch movement, and having um, I believe reaching tendrils, basically a ranged action where she can push an enemy model or a friendly model six inches makes it a lot easier to manipulate movement to just pull in the enemy and move them to where you have your scheme marker set up or to place someone else in position to drop like the other interact that you need in order to score this point. So being mm-hmm. aware of like all of your options and knowing which models you can take if the opponent has any like models you can easily abuse to score certain schemes as well. Right. Yeah, no, I would totally agree. And I would also say that you probably cannot plot out ahead an entire game of Malva. There's just too many different possibilities and too much going on. Mm-hmm. But, and we've mentioned this on other episodes, when you take a model, you should be taking it for a reason. And when you pick a scheme, you should have a sense of how you're going to score that scheme. I know uh, another podcast broke down what it takes to score breakthrough, right? Just how many AP is is involved in that. And so if you are taking breakthrough, you need to ask yourself, am I going for one or both points? What models do I have that can get over there? What turn am I going to be able to do that in? You know, these are these are things that you should have a sense of when you're picking the scheme. And if you've picked a scheme and you're like, I have no idea how I'm going to score that, you've put yourself at a disadvantage. And odds are you're going to have a much harder time of scoring it. One other thing I would say about schemes is, you know, it's been my experience uh, both learning Malifaux and then also basically every time a new scheme pool comes out with Gaining Grounds is if I am not familiar with the scheme requirements, it makes playing that game much more difficult. You know, I have to check the scheme requirements in game and, and it's it, it's just there's the mental load is much more taxing. So if you pick schemes that you're familiar with, it's going to make gameplay easier. So that might you know, that connects also to the pre-pre game thing we were talking about, but just being able to practically judge what schemes you can do, not just for your crew, but requirements that you were comfortable with yourself is going to improve your odds and failure to properly assess these things is going to have the opposite result. All right. So I think that's a probably, bleh, probably <laughs> a pretty good overview of some reasons why you might uh, lose the game in the pre-game. So now we've, you know, we've built crews, we've picked schemes, we're ready to like start putting models on the table. This is what we've called the during the game section. So Kogan, why don't you start us off with something that costs us games here? So a major thing is poor deployment. And the specific <laughs> thing happens probably only really in like in-person games versus Vassal, where you set up your stuff. And then you start, you know, you pull out your app and you build the game. And when you pick your deployment zones, they're like, well, I already have all my models out on this side of the board. (laughs) (laughs) So I really only have like two choices for deployment zones. And it's like, (laughs) you're already kind of screwing yourself. It's like, yeah, sure. I mean, like technically you can pick any deployment zone you want, but do you really want to like force your opponent to move all his stuff and then you move all your stuff and add like another 20 minutes to this pregame stuff? And it's like, nah, let's... We'll just pick this corner. It's not great, but I'll make do. Jeez, how long does it take you to move eight models? 20 minutes to swap table sides? When your models are painted, you, you need to take a little <laughs> bit better care of them. 
You didn't make sure they're not scratching. You're just like bouncing around in your bag and just losing little bits of resin or plastic. That's just called weathering. So I would say I definitely agree with with this sentiment, even though it doesn't take me 20 minutes to move a pound of plastic uh, three feet. But yeah, I, I do just tend to play on the side that I was already at when we when we agreed to play the game. I look, there's nothing <laughs> there's there's nothing wrong with saying that you want to pick a deployment on the other side. And it's, you know, if, if someone said that to me, I wouldn't think any bad thoughts about them. I would just be like, OK, I'll play on the other side. But this is just, you know, it's laziness. Right. And like you said, mm. this is a thing that probably only happens yet. Now, I shouldn't say probably thing that only happens on physical games because it's not really this element on Vassal. And it's just pure laziness. And it's also a false economy because if a different deployment is on the other side would have been better spending even even Colgan's 20 minutes. <laughs> uh, you know, a Mal- game of Malfo is going to be two and a half hours. So, you know, if you can, if you can win or improve your chances from winning from it, uh, it's probably worth it. Um, I would say an, like another thing about this is that, you know, at our, at our store, you know, we had these six by four tables, and so we have two Malfo tables, two Malfo boards set up right next to each other, right? Like two three by threes right next to each other. And you're looking at an appointment like uh, Wedge or Standard, it would be perfectly legal to pick one of the, you know, one of the quote unquote vertical deployments, one of the, the deployments that, that's on one of the sides that, that maybe the players aren't really standing on. But from what I've seen, no one ever really does that. And I can't think of any time when I've really done that either. Just again, for this like laziness and not wanting to be inconvenienced a little bit. Yeah, yeah, that that is definitely a thing. I don't think I've done that either. And I definitely haven't seen anyone else do that. So uh, I guess our, our advice here is that if you're costing yourself games or at least a chances at games, all because you know, you're too lazy to move to the other side of a table. You only have yourself to blame. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So another element of deployment that might cost you is model negation. So that would be where you set up your model in such a way as to negate its purpose or to, you know, either, either absolutely negate it or to just kind of degrade it somewhat. And um, one anecdote I can share with reference an earlier episode, uh, we did the battle report where I played Raspi and Kogan, uh, you played Ras or no, I played the Vix and you played mm-hmm. Raspi. Uh, and I brought Hans and because of the way deployment worked, there was this forest right in the middle of the board that was going to stop him from exerting any of this sniper pressure. And so first of all, this, you know, this should have been something that influenced my crew hiring. Hans may not have been the right model to take into that board, period. Um, but because I had already screwed myself in the pregame, I then, you know, further compounded that issue during the game by not really deploying him in a way that was going to increase his value or or at least reduce the amount he was going to be at a disadvantage because of deployment. And so this is oftentimes when we deploy, there's not a whole lot of strategy to it, at least for me. It's like, oh. A corner, twelve inches. Okay, well, here's my guys in a, you know, ringing the arc of the, <laughs> of the deployment zone, and there's not really a whole lot of forethought that goes into it. But I would say that if you do maybe take a minute 
and look at the deployment zone and, and look at what your individual models are trying to do, you are a lot less likely to deploy yourself into, I mean, I would say into a corner, but that might be confusing with corner being an actual deployment. So, you know, de uh, deploying yourself into a block, uh, box, like deploying yourself in a way that, that inhibits what you're trying to do. Yeah, I've definitely been in games where I'll take like Vendetta or some other target-based scheme and I'll just kind of forget during deployment. Or like I'll ask my opponent to like deploy the half that I don't actually care about first. <laughs> it's just like I'm deploying blind. I'm like, oh, why did I do this to myself? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've done that uh, several times. Or um, you uh, you picked your model for claim jump, and then you you deploy it on sort of the edge of your deployment zone, and you've assigned it some sort of outflanking type role, whether you know it's for an outflank strategy or or, or scheme rather, or just you, you know because to to move a marker that's on the edge or, or something like that, right? So mm. deployment can have a significant impact in the game. It's not determinative because any model can actually recover from a poor deployment. But we've said before, Malifaux is a game of efficiency. And that starts right at the... In fact, it starts before deployment, as we mentioned. Like, there's several stages. In fact, we even cost yourself that efficiency. But setting up your models correctly is going to be a benefit to winning. And I know that sounds obvious, but just the number of times I have cost myself an action to, or, you know, multiple actions to, to untangle poor deployment, or I've, I've rendered a model weaker or even dare I say useless because of poor deployment, you know, it, it's, it still happens to me and I've played plenty of games. So mm -hmm. if you're struggling with games a bit, Maybe look at how your deployment has gone. All right, what's another kind of issue with deployment? Um, I guess we already kind of talked about it a little bit, but you know, when you just kind of like pack your guys together too tight and you just realize you're blocking yourself in. Like I remember there's times, you know, where I'm so focused on like certain crews, like engine crews, like passing out, you know, a bunch of like focused or some other conditions that I need. And then I kind of forget that in my attempt to make sure everyone was in range, I kind of just like blocked in my master. So after doing their like one or two buff actions, I don't actually have anywhere that I can move that is <laughs> beneficial to me. It's like, oh, I can move two inches forward and then I run into all my guys. <laughs> yeah, it, with these engines especially, they often require kind of a specific activation order. If you if you didn't really set up with, with that in mind or you just weren't careful enough in your setup, uh, that can be a problem. Sometimes you you might have multiple, say, of the same minions, but one minion has claim jump and the other doesn't, and you've kind of just sort of forgotten that during the setup, and so the you, you know they're sort of hemmed in in an awkward manner. Again, no one loses. Or, sorry, sorry, I shouldn't say that because maybe someone does, but you're not necessarily doomed if you have to spend a couple of extra AP to untangle a poor deployment. Uh, sometimes, in fact, you weren't going to do that much with the that AP anyways. But it's just another thing that can set you a little bit back. All right. So I think that's probably a pretty good overview of the deployment issues. So now we have, uh, you know, we finished the pre-pre-game. We finished the pre-game. We finished deployment. We're now actually in the game and, and we're, we're moving models, we're moving cards, we're doing things. Um, what's sort of something that comes to mind here, Colgan? Yeah, so I kind of touched on this earlier uh, with like the kind of mindset. I 
always had and you know still have it's this kind of like overestimating my opponent's ability to disrupt things or kill things on the board and this is like another thing where you know model knowledge can definitely help out because this doesn't really come up that much when I'm playing against a keyword or a crew that I know very well mm-hmm. because I'm not really playing around with all these what ifs or if I miss something do they have other things that can move them but when I'm playing against like a new keyword or I'm playing against a lot of models that I don't really know very well then I can definitely get myself into a position where it's like I'll basically mess up my activation order or like force it in a bad way because I think that I need to hold a certain action or like like a certain scheme drop until the very last activation because otherwise my opponent could counter it because they have this guy like 20 inches away and like maybe, just maybe <laughs> he can get there and mess up my plan. And I'll just kind of basically create it so that my opponent has like, is omnipresent on the board, even though like in reality, it's only like a few of the guys that I actually need to worry about and they've already activated and I can just kind of go ahead and like do my filler action to you know drop this scheme secure this point while i'm waiting for them to like make the first move before i can like actually charge in with my offensive threats and take advantage of that extra efficiency of not having to move and charge right yeah and i would say that there's two components to sort of this uh misassessing enemy threats right one is where you know or at least you have a really good really good idea of what your opponent does and that sends you into this spiral where you just kind of assume that your opponent is going to be able to perform the optimal combination of actions. And of course, all those actions are, are going to succeed fantastically uh, <laughs> to foil your plans. And things I, you know, I hate losing models. It's, uh, you know, when a model dies, no one loves losing models, but when I'm, I, I hate it when my models die, you know, and, and I am a defensive player. I have a, a sort of defensive attritional mindset when it comes to Malifaux. And part of that, I think, is is this sense that, oh, geez, if I go here, then they're going to shoot me and then they're going to rapid fire and they're going to shoot me and, you know, they're both going to be severe. So I'm just going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to lose my my mechanical rider or, or, you know, whatever it is to this desperate mercenary because they're going to they're going to put the severe and do 10 damage. Right. It's possible. Mm-hmm. But. I think you do need to have a healthy respect for what your opponent can do, but assuming that everything your opponent does is going to work, it just becomes paralyzing. This is possible when you know what your opponent does, but it's also possible when you don't have the model knowledge. And so some people in the face of ignorance may just rush ahead and then get themselves into trouble because they didn't know what their opponent can do. But some people have the opposite response. If they're like, oh, well, I don't know what that model over there does, or I don't remember, and I'm too lazy to look it up in the app, and I'm too embarrassed to ask, so I'm just not going to move anywhere near them. You know, that that also can lead to to some suboptimal uses, uh, usages for your models. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely remember like the first time I went up against Jack Daw, and I realized like how quickly he can deplete your hand. Mm-hmm. and you just like open up a turn and it's like oh i attacked you you discarded a card oh it's execute <laughs> it's like oh <laughs> god damn it <laughs> were you playing mei feng in that yeah, game yeah 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 i do i do recall that where i just had that turn <laughs> where yeah it's like i'll hit you and i'll stone for a crow i'll hit you and i'll stone for a crow and yeah by the end of, by the end of that you had no hand 
everything in Malifaux can do crazy stuff. And when you don't know what that crazy stuff is, it, it kind of sucks when it hits you in the face. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these schemes and strategies, they require a high degree of precision, right? Like you have to be in a particular place. Maybe you have to be touching a marker. Maybe you have to be three inches or, you know, two inches from the center point or, you know, from a board edge or, or, or whatever it is you're trying to do. They all require specifics. And there's probably too many effects in the game uh, that can that can impact them for someone to keep all of them in mind all of the time. Even the most experienced players forget or overlook things at time. But I would say that one thing that really can come out of left field are things like ranged marker removals or uh, little attacks that have pushes built in or pushes as a trigger. Or, you know, you might think that you're engaging someone and so it's going to prevent them from interacting, but they might have an attack that can, that can uh, like declare a trigger, like shove aside or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Which you may have thought of, you may have considered earlier in, in the game or at a different point in the game. You're like, okay, well, she's got shove aside. I got to be careful because you can get multiple attacks or whatever. Once, you know, if you categorize that as an attack effect, you may intent, you, you entirely have forgotten about it. When you're like, yeah, I've got this model locked down. There's no way he's going to pick up this symbol. And then he's like, oh, well, shove aside. I push you. I push into the marker. And I, you know, now I interact to pick up the marker. Not only do you have to keep in mind all the different effects that exist in the game, you have to avoid pigeonholing them in terms of what you might think of as their, you know, quote unquote, primary use. Mm -hmm. And really, like, just think about the implication of any use of it in the game. It's kind of crazy the difference in pressure when the opponent has like range scheme marker removal versus not. Spread them out goes from like being a super safe uh, scheme against certain crews. And then it's like, oh, they can just remove it from like six or eight inches away. So you, you don't really have any way of protecting that placement. And it's so action efficient to just remove it and deny you that point. And suddenly like it becomes a dead scheme in your eyes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and the opposite is true too, right? Not realizing that your opponent can place scheme markers at range can be a huge issue. You know, you you thought that there was no way that they could score uh, outflank because they they couldn't get a model and a scheme marker there this turn, it's just the way the actions worked out, or there's no way they can do spread them out, or, or you know whatever it is. And all of a sudden, it's like, nope, I can. Instead of dropping a uh, shockwave marker, I can turn it into a scheme marker. And if you just didn't see that coming, you can't stop what you can't expect. Or at least it's, you know, if you do stop it, it's accidental. Um, and relying on just accidental, uh, coincidental luck is not the best strategy of Malifaux. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So another way I think that people can sort of put themselves on on the back foot is uh, activation order, right? We actually have had an entire episode kind of talking about activation order. So obviously there's a lot that goes into it and we're not going to cover it all as part of this episode. But what are some ways that I guess people can cost themselves the game or, or cost themselves chances in the game, sort of reduce their chances in the game through poorly managed activation order? Sometimes I'll see, or, you know, even for myself, like I'll get so locked in on trying to kill an enemy model that I kind of forget that I was supposed to be doing something else. <laughs> I don't actually need to be here and I should probably just disengage and like move over and like score my point, but so close to killing them. And you just end up like spending your action, killing them. And it's just like, shit, like, 
I can't I can't actually get to where I need to be anymore. So I think that's that's one of the things that can happen. Another thing too that will often happen to me is again, I'll kind of get it into my mind that if I show my hand like too early, my opponent's gonna be able to react, get their model like halfway across the board over here and deny this point. And then I'll hold someone's activation till like the last activation. And then my opponent will just kind of charge him and engage them. And it's like, okay, now I can't interact. And now I've lost this point because I held it for too long and would have been so much better to just move this guy earlier, you know, drop that scheme marker and then just force my opponent to either like redirect his resources or just run interference with the rest of my model. So he wouldn't actually be able to make it and deny me that point. Right. And I think part of this is maybe incorrectly assessing how valuable an action is or or correctly prioritizing what you're trying to do in a turn. I, I know oftentimes that can seem kind of difficult, especially as you might be in a situation where there's there's a major threat that you're worried about on on the other side, right? Like maybe, for instance, you've already revealed claim jump and and we're later in the game now. And what you're trying to do now is keep your claim jump model healthy so that you can score that second point, right? And and so you're really worried about them bringing over the first mate and just walloping them. And and so you're you're sitting there saying, okay, well, I've got to really hold off on, on my support model because what they have to do is they have to heal my claim jump model for when my claim jump model gets hit by, by the first mate. But the thing is, you don't know what your opponent is going to do. You don't know what your opponent cares about. If your opponent... Or I mean, maybe you do know, maybe you figured it out, but maybe you don't know and you never really know for sure, mm-hmm. right? If you've kind of incorrectly assessed what your opponent wants to do, these kind of contingency actions that you have in your mind for why you're reserving an activation order suddenly become worthless. You know, maybe the first mate schemes, leaps, and schemes. And now you're like, oh, geez, you know, if I had activated the support model earlier in the turn, I could have actually saved a model from dying and preserved an activation. But instead, I was so worried about, you know, this other thing that was going to happen. So activation order, like so many things in Malifaux, it's multifaceted. It's very layered. If you're already way ahead, it doesn't matter. And it's very, you know, maybe it's very comfortable at that point. But if you're in a close game, it can easily cost you efficiency to fail to to recognize you know really what's what's important in that turn yeah there's definitely been times where i've just given up a point because i really do, you know i just kind of forgot what was actually important this turn or what was actually going to score me points <laughs> yeah i mean, i in one of the first games i played against jim i lost a game i could have just tied uh, this is an activation order. This is just a, a stupidity thing. <laughs> but uh, it goes to sort of how you mentioned forgetting. Like I could have tied the game by delivering a message, but I just made another melee attack because, yeah, you know, again, just not really thinking things through. One thing I think is interesting to me is that some of these activation order issues can be kind of similar to the deployment issues. Mm-hmm. Like if you activate in the wrong order and you kind of create a traffic jam, or if you didn't realize that you would need to move a model first, maybe to clear a sight line for an aura or a charge line or just to you know, make an action possible or, or, or whatever. Even if you had in your mind the right thing you were going to do with a model uh, that was going to be really important for the turn, if you've incorrectly activated another model previously, you might have find that you've just gummed up your own works. 
mm-hmm. which can be pretty frustrating at the table. So that's activation order. Uh, the next thing we have on our list is telegraphing intent. What do we mean by that, Chloe? And what would be maybe an example of a way you've done this? Yeah, so this is going to be, well, I, I feel like the best example is actually from playing against my wife. Um, we were playing Symbols of Authority, and she really likes running like Widow Weaver and Bandersnatch and, you know, like dropping web markers to get that extra movement. So she decided, you know, the best way to get to the symbol is to just drop this web marker and then next turn she's going to activate and jump to it and then just grab the symbol that's right next to it. So then right after she activated, I had one of my models that was like a few inches away from the web marker, just move over, take the interact and just destroy the web marker. (laughs) And she's like, why? Like, how did you know? I was like, there is nothing else there. (laughs) There's no other reason for this web marker to be like six inches deep into my side of the board, just right next to this strategy marker. Like, what else are you going to do? Yeah, so at the answer, I should say that telegraphing intent can cost you games because it allows your opponent to you know to mess up your plans quite easily but at the same time it can be a great way of adding bluff to your game Mm -hmm. so you know the the lesson you know the takeaway there for for ali maybe should be okay next time if breakthrough is in the pool uh and i don't take it but if I throw out a web marker there, Colgan is going to spend an action to go destroy it. And it's not going to cost me anything. And and this is, I think, another element of player skill. If I'm playing against a newer player, I'm much more likely to read these obvious actions as actual intent. Whereas if I'm playing a stronger player, bluff becomes more likely and it... it adds this element of uncertainty into how I should respond. Yeah, for sure. I think it's just kind of a big part of this as our telegraphing intent is going to be threat assessment, right? Like mm-hmm. it doesn't matter if the opponent knows what you're going to do if they don't have any way of stopping it, right? Mm-hmm. That's true. In fact, uh, one way you can show your contempt for your opponent is to tell your opponent what your schemes are at the start. And if you would like to do that next time we play Cold Moon, <laughs> I, I do not mind at all if you would like to express your dominance in that manner. I'll consider it. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, telegraphing intent. So one thing is that you might think something you've done is super obvious, but there's a lot going on in Malifaux and your opponent maybe doesn't, since your opponent doesn't have perfect knowledge, they won't necessarily read an action that you've done in the same way. So you shouldn't also let yourself become paralyzed with with the sense of oh if I do this then my opponent will know because kind of like you said first of all if they can't salt if they can't stop it it doesn't matter but also you just have to you have to follow your plan and you have to try to score your points mm-hmm. at a certain juncture in the game you have to drop the scheme marker to to score the deadly charges or, or whatever it is so you cannot allow yourself to become paralyzed by the sense of oh my opponent will realize what I'm doing. But you also should think about when is the right moment to make your move to do these kind of scoring actions or these actions that are highly committal, either because they're going to um, demonstrate what you're trying to do to your opponent or they're going to kind of, in chess, we call a forcing sequence. It would it would bring you down this this path where the actions become almost automatic for both you and, and possibly your opponent. Uh, so yeah, just go into those things clear-eyed is is what I would say. Uh, so the last 
bullet point that we have here on our on on our pre-show outline is fighting for no benefit. I am definitely a culprit of this. You know, we say Malfa is not about killing. We say it, in fact, in every demo. We've said it in several episodes. It is 100% true. But <laughs> even knowing that, like, I often judge how I'm doing in the game based on board position. I often am quite concerned with maintaining a positive board position, even sometimes being willing to give up an early point to secure what I feel is an advantageous board position. And I do sometimes find myself just fighting to no benefit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, I've definitely had that as well. I think another thing is when you're trying to keep a model alive and spending so many resources when it's no longer beneficial to you. And like one of the bigger things for me lately, um, as I've been playing like the honeypot crew more and more, is I realized I don't really care about Lynch that much. <laughs> I, I didn't mean, I'm not sure if this is like the best way to play him, but He's like useful to me in like the first few turns of the game, mainly as like being able to place hungering darkness in a place that's really annoying for my opponent. Uh -huh. But as it gets later and later, it's like, I mean, his nuke can be nice. Like he does a little bit of damage, but for the most part, he kind of becomes like a tar pit for me. You know, like turn three or four, if my opponent kills them, I'm like, I'm, I'm not too bothered. But, you know, before I'd be like, it's my master. I got to keep him alive. I'm going to burn all my stones, reducing damage, making sure he stays on the board. And at the end of the game, like the last few turns that I kept him alive, he didn't deny my opponent any points. He didn't score me any points, but he definitely like ate out my resources enough that I could have been doing more effective things across the board rather than pouring into it to keep him alive for like another turn. Yep. Yep. You know, sometimes we become kind of wrapped up in in the battling or sometimes fighting provides a i guess a simple action that like that we know we're going to drive some benefit from mm -hmm. so you know when you when you do damage to an opponent's model or even manage to remove an opponent's model there's upside to that especially if it's not turn five right especially if it means that that's a model that's you know you're not going to see in future turns Right. And so we might think that, oh, okay, you know, I'm here. I'm just going to make this melee attack. And it's not a useless action. It's not an action that you don't drive any benefit from. But would you have been better disengaging or using this other ranged action that you have on someone else or using a tactical action or, you know, whatever it was that, that you could have done instead? You may not even have considered those other options because you might have been like, I'm here. I'm a min three beater. Like, I'm going to hit this thing. I think. It can be hard to judge these things at the moment, especially if you're in a fight or you or you you really think, oh, like he's thrown Lynch forward. If I kill Lynch, I've taken out his master. But, you know, if assassinate isn't in the pool, if it's not turf war, if you've derived no scoring from taking out his master and you've cost yourself points to do it, you really have to ask yourself if what you've gained is equal to what you've lost. And a lot of these in a lot of these uh, situations. That's just not going to have been the case. And I do think a lot of newer players especially do get caught up in in the fighting. And I think the fighting is also, uh, I mean, fun is subjective, but mm -hmm. there's something like just about fighting that is somehow fun. Or I, I would say that like a large percent of, of miniature players find it like the entertaining part of these miniature games. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, I think a big part of it too is like when you remove a model off the board, it feels like the benefits are immediately tangible, even if it doesn't actually help you. At the moment, it's like, you know, they only have like seven or eight guys on the board. If you can remove like one or two, like it feels like you're in control of the game, even if you haven't actually progressed in any meaningful way, which why I feel like it can be a very big trap. Mm-hmm. But yeah, also, if you're losing, it can feel satisfying to kill models. And if you've already figured out that you've lost mathematically, mm-hmm. I mean, I think really in that solution or in that situation, rather, if, if you if you guys don't just talk it out, right, if it's if it's not that bleak. Mm-hmm. But if you know that you've lost the game, I really think you should still be striving to score points because I do think that you'll get more from the game from that effort. But it can be satisfying to be like, OK, well, I've lost this game, but. I'm just going to kill as much as I can. Um, and so you've kind of set up a, a like a moral victory objective for yourself. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I can definitely see that. Especially if like one model has really screwed you over. Like I remember, I think I was playing Jim and he was using the first mate and the first mate did, you know, it was just, this was pre-nerf first mate. Oh. And he was just running around doing crazy stuff. And I was like, I hate this model. I This game's over, but I'm just going to kill this model. Um <laughs> spike kill exactly (laughs) so in that case i wouldn't say it's fighting for no benefit because i did derive a benefit from it but it's it's not one that the rules of malifaux explicitly recognizes yeah and and doubtless there are many other ways uh through gameplay or through assessment or or what have you that that you can kind of set yourself at a bit of a disadvantage but this is only one episode we can't cover them all here so let's move on to the post game and this might seem odd but how can you lose games in the post game or you know how can you uh set yourself behind for the next game in a post game yeah so i mean i think probably more apt to say you'll set yourself behind i don't really think any games have been won after the game has ended uh well i do have an anecdote here oh shit okay (laughs) so in the tournament where well, I guess technically this isn't post game because you do. I I guess like the end game scoring, whether or not you consider this post game or not, is, <laughs> is gonna. But this is arguably post game, or you know, at, at the worst, at the end of the game because that's mm-hmm. to do with end game scoring. I played this game in one of the Basel World Series events, uh, where I played Dashiell and my opponent played Cadmus, and we only got through two and a half turns. You know, before time was called, we we ended like mid turn three, and it was a zero to zero tie another one of the podcasts like made fun of our game um <laughs> they're like shout out to the people who played the zero zero tie or, or whatever uh and, and i think they were talking about like why the current pool like why gg1 was bad or, or whatever mm-hmm. but you know it was really just cadmus and dashiell and yeah the the game just took forever and so by the end of the when time was called i was just so mentally drained that I didn't really bother to to examine the end conditions on my schemes very closely. So we reported it as a zero zero tie, but I actually won that game um, because I had the I had actually either condition of runic binding on the table, mm-hmm. uh, so I could have won it one to zero with runic binding. But yeah, so during the end game, or whether you consider this post game because all the actions have ended, or whether you consider it during the game. Either way, make sure to check your victory conditions quite closely. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the biggest way 
to win games. <laughs> Knowing <laughs> what conditions need to be met in order to actually win. Yes. Yeah, but and I, I think an, uh, part of that too is that when the game ends, that's another moment to uh, kind of take a breath and look at the table anew. And mm-hmm. and I just, you know, I didn't do that. It was like, okay, we're done. Good. Thanks for the game. I'm out. <laughs> he wasn't in any way unpleasant as an opponent. It's just, it was Dashville versus Cadmus. It, you know, it's just such a slog. It was so draining. And yeah, I was just, I was done. And it cost me the game. But oh well. So that is arguably not post-game. So what's something that might be genuinely post-game? I mean, I, I think we can call that for post-game because now you know to read your schemes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I think one of the big things would be um, kind of lack of analysis. Like that, I think we talked a little bit about it before, but like having the mindset, depending on your mindset, will have a big factor in how quickly you improve at the game, right? Mm-hmm. If you're in this mindset of like, all right, I lost, but what can I do better? And you're looking at the game, it's like, well, you know, this model didn't actually work out for me, or I really didn't understand this threat, or I didn't, re- wasn't able to properly like assess the board position or how I should activate my guys versus being like, well, my opponent flipped really high. I flipped really low. This is dumb. Like next time we play, I'll definitely beat him. He's just lucky this time. Mm-hmm. And it's like, even if that is true, that's not anything that's actionable, right? I can't go into the next game and be like, all right, I'm going to flip better. That's nothing you really have any agency over unless you cheat, which, mm-hmm. you know, that's, we're not even going to address that. But <laughs> it's not something you can actually um, think about or improve on the next time you play the game. And if that's all you take away from the game, then there's going to be all these other things you're missing and you're you're going to continually lose in the exact same manner because you're never really understanding or even trying to understand why you're losing games. Right. And this is your opportunity to, you know, kind of evaluate how your plans turned out. So mm-hmm. you took this model because you thought it was going to be your breakthrough model, but did it did it actually ever go there or, or, you know, was it, was it effective in the manner that you thought, or did you use your models in, in the right way? I, um, I've seen several games where players will uh, bring an expensive model, like one of the writers and only use it to scheme with not And I'm sure when they were building their crew, they're not like, Oh man, the hooded writer is going to be just like the greatest uh, spread them out model. But just because of the way things turned out, you know, maybe they deployed them on an edge that was away from the fighting, or maybe they sent them off to kill something, and then that was the only thing that was on that side. And so, you know, rather than kind of bring the model back into the middle, they just sent it off to scheme or or whatever. You know, was that the right use? If it scored you points, maybe. If it didn't score you points, or if another model could have done the same thing with cheaper costs, uh, you know, maybe not. So evaluating the results not just in terms of what happened but in terms of what you thought was going to happen or what you were hoping was going to happen what your pre-game plans were why you picked the schemes you picked why you brought the models you picked this is all a time to evaluate that and this then now is a callback to some of these like pre-game issues we talked about right if you locked your list if you brought your list just because that's what you were going to bring you have much less to evaluate and therefore much less to learn from because you weren't executing a game-specific plan. 
It's mm-hmm. not to say that you can't evaluate how your models did. You definitely can. But you can't say, oh, okay, everyone says Juan Yudo is a good model to to hold the football. So I brought Juan Yudo. How did he do for me in this game? As opposed to, oh, Juan Yudo is just, he's always in my crew. I, I don't know if that's true of anyone on Earth, but <laughs> I mean, it's not a bad model, but it, it's definitely not an auto take, I don't think. But, you know, if I if I bring him every game, just no matter what, then all I can judge him in is how did he perform in that game just in what he was doing. And I have no no expectations or at least much less in terms of expectations or planning to analyze. Yeah, I definitely agree. If you have like a primarily scheme runner that's constantly fighting or you have an offensive piece that's constantly scheming that probably points to the fact that your list isn't quite tailored effectively or, you know, you're placing them wrong or you're not able to properly read out how the game will play out or understanding where to deploy them or maybe how to even effectively use that model. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Now, I don't want to sit here and sound like I'm castigating people who play locked lists or whatever, because for one thing, as I mentioned, I think many casual players uh, do play in that mode. You know, they like what they like they may even only have one list Mm -hmm. so there's you know it's not like build to the pool or get the fuck out right you you know you're welcome in malifo whether you play lock list or not but if you did play a lock list uh one thing you might do at this point is say okay you know this is a list i brought this is the kind of thing i struggled with in this game maybe next game i'll bring a model specifically to do this thing Right? And you don't have to change your entire list. And this might be a way to grow in the game if you're interested in growing in the game, but still playing what you like. You might just bring in, you know, swap out one model or one or two models, or maybe consider whether an upgrade. You know, we have some some players who probably don't use upgrades as as much or or as well as they could. And so you might want to take a look at some of the upgrades or if one of your opponents upgrades. Uh, if you were like, wow, I didn't know that, you know, that that could happen. Maybe take a look at what the upgrades can do. <laughs> uh, <laughs> every game of Malifaux can definitely be a learning experience. I believe that's true no matter who you are in the game. But for newer players, especially, or for players who, whether, whether or not you're new, if you just kind of intentionally play only a narrow range of things, you don't have to abandon that approach, but you can... I guess, augment it through this post-game analysis. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think even if, you know, you don't have the option of switching out those models, just understanding how effective this model was or how you could possibly use it more effectively in the future is always helpful, right? Like you could have run the perfect list for the strategy and the scheme and just played it completely wrong. But if you're not looking and questioning how these models perform, you might never realize that. Yeah, no, I I agree with that 100%. And I guess I want to jump off of that since you said the word questioning to then transition to uh, this is an opportunity to ask questions of your opponent, right? So, I mean, this is kind of in the context of why people lose games, but Mm -hmm. it's perfectly legitimate. As I said, there are things to learn, win or lose. So I think either player probably has, has something to gain by asking these questions, but especially if you lost the game, this is an excellent opportunity to ask your opponent. Like if, if your opponent did something and you were like, geez, I wonder why they did that. This is an opportunity to say, hey, in turn two, you know, you moved 
uh, mad dog over here. Like, why did you do that? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And sometimes the answer is, oh yeah, I thought you were going to do this and I was wrong. And so it was actually a misplay or like, I have no idea why I did that. Uh, And then sometimes, (laughs) sometimes your opponent has a really good answer and you're like, oh geez, that makes a lot of sense. So definitely do not be worried about asking questions, especially if you, if you lost, like when people win games, they want to talk, <laughs> you know. So, uh, if if you can, if you're if you didn't enjoy playing with your opponent, I can understand just like packing up and being like, "Good game." But if you had a good experience and you you came away uh, some points shy, ask some questions. Yeah, I definitely agree, especially when like starting out, just having that conversation and understanding. Like, I know there'd be times like. You know, I felt like, and I didn't couldn't like win this fight, or I didn't feel like this went well for me. It's like, what do you th- or like? What do you think was the turning point, or like, what do you think I could have done better? And there's been times where it's just like, I don't even know why you were fighting here. Uh-huh. There is nothing for you to gain. You didn't have the resources to back it up, and like, I wanted this guy here. He's just there to kind of be a tar pit, and you ended up throwing so many people at him when they could have been doing other things. Yep, yep. I, I'm going to use an anecdote with Alaska Kevin. Um, <laughs> because i uh i just don't have to be scared of any retribution um you know it, while he was this is admittedly you know while he was still learning he was in his uh pandora main poltergeist leading the charge kind of uh kind of play style which he did like grow from and and you know become a quite respectable opponent but uh mm-hmm. i remember he was playing a game i was playing dawn he was playing pandora he basically agreed to to take this fight in the middle uh, that he was behind in, and he kept pouring resources into it, basically like one model or or one and a half models at a time mm-hmm. against a pretty beefy massacre line that I had. After the game, you know, it's kind of like, you know, why were you if you wanted to take this fight, why didn't you pour more models into it? Or if you weren't willing to to spend resources, why did you take this fight at all? Mm-hmm. And and his answer was basically like, oh well. I don't know. <laughs> like he didn't really have any any good reason, and maybe maybe he had a reason, and and he just didn't want to say it. Um, mm-hmm. or but maybe he just didn't really have a reason. So when you kind of ask questions of of your opponent, you're also going to start a dialogue with them, and they are going to ask questions back. Or I mean, they may ask questions back. They probably will ask questions back, and that can you know prompt you, give you an opportunity to examine some things that you may have just done reflexively. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's definitely things to learn by by asking other people, especially if they, you know, especially if they won or especially if they're more knowledgeable or definitely if they play what you played in that game. Be like, hey, I, I know you play Rava. Is there anything, you know, that maybe you would have done differently? Those are all just excellent uh, learning opportunities. So we have one more bullet point on our post game blaming luck kogan how can this really cost you uh future games yeah i i think i was touching on this i feel like the biggest problem with this is that i feel like most people that kind of go to this as the reason for losing kind of shut off any dialogue i like i know in the past when i played against someone it's like oh man you know it's like i was just i i just lost this my luck was so terrible like i couldn't win a single duel and in my mind i'm like there were several times where, you know, like you could have done something or change your course of action, like all these things. But 
once they go down that route, I'm just like, yeah. And like, I'll just empathize with them and then I'll just stop there because to me, it's like, well, they obviously don't want to talk about it or it doesn't sound like they're interested in hearing it. Or like, if I do say anything, it's just going to sound like a lecture or like, um, you know, just like showboating or something like that. So, yeah. yeah. I don't know, I'm just agreeing with you. <laughs> like, maybe you're not used to me agreeing with you. <laughs> <laughs> it is a new feeling. Um, but and and the the big thing to that is maybe people don't share the same thought, but I also feel like it's kind of demeaning to your opponent if you know you're losing and it's like, oh, you know, I just like I rolled bad or I flipped bad because it's like the implicit idea. It's like you didn't really do anything right, you know. It was just I just flipped bad, and it's like if it had been like any other day or any other outcome, like I would have won. And mm-hmm. it's like I don't really want to extend an interaction with someone in that state of mind. Like, I don't think it's beneficial for either party. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I would say that when people complain about the deck, uh, I would agree with you. There's not really a lot that you say about that. And I also think that they're not looking for a rational discussion about probability. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Or even about like alternatives in the game. And really the only thing you can do is, is commiserate uh, whether they're right or wrong. You know, it's entirely possible that they actually were not unlucky. But Malifaux, you know, even though Malifaux is not a dice-based game, luck is an element of Malifaux. You can lose a game because of the cards. Mm-hmm. But it's it's the rare game where a single event has cost you to lose due to luck. It, it can happen, right? You can, like, Black Joker on the damage that should have killed something and, and that would have scored points or had this huge ripple effect. It's entirely possible to lose a game because of luck. And it's inc- entirely possible for the game to have been made much more difficult because of luck. And so then you didn't actually really lose because of luck. You lose because you you made the wrong decision somewhere else. But things, the game, the board state was just so unfavorable to you because of luck. So I, I, I don't want to say that that's not true. It definitely is is true. But as you said, there's nothing to learn if your takeaway is, I just flip badly. Mm-hmm. And if you did really lose a game because you because of the deck, hey, there's nothing you could do about that. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you would have won but for a good deck. But if you just did get deck screwed, it sucks. You did get deck screwed and you can at least take some solace from that, that your your plan wasn't necessarily bad. It was it was luck. But I would say that certain events, some people can seem lucky. Because what they're doing has been well planned. Mm-hmm. It's like if if someone's if it seems like geez they always succeed at everything. First of all, I'm sure if you recorded every duel that happened, they didn't <laughs> succeed at everything. But also, a lot of it is pre planning. They went into this sequence knowing what was possible because of the cards they had in their hand. Mm-hmm. Or you know your your model is they hit you with McMorning earlier and you didn't discard, so now you're at injured too. And now you're losing every duel. Every time someone attacks that model, you're getting hit. Well, yeah, because you're injured too, right? So in I used to play on this online Blood Bowl site. This was years before uh, the, the video game Blood Bowl. And it was essentially just like a Vassal version of Blood Bowl. Except it wasn't on Vassal. It was just this website. And it had this luck meter. And this luck meter would infuriate me because I would always have a really high luck score. Um, because what I'm trying to do is really reliable, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm hitting people at greater 
or, or you know whatever else right or i'm trying things with with built-in re-rolls or so i'm succeeding my actions and that's driving up my luck meter and meanwhile my opponents are doing things like dodging into three tackle zones or like throwing long bombs or or whatever and whether they succeed or fail right if they succeed they're just lucky and that's ridiculous and if they fail their luck meter is going down and i've had games in the past where like my opponent's like look at this like you had 20 percent more luck than me it's like did i or (laughs) (laughs) or was i trying actions that were 20 percent more likely and i was just we were both succeeding at expected rates so I would say, look, I understand being frustrated by games, um, especially in the moment of a game. Some people are just always frustrated. Some people are frustrated by a specific situation or by a specific opponent. And I get it. Sometimes you're just not going to do the analysis for whatever reason. But <laughs> if you want to grow in the game, if you're, you know, your initial reaction at the table may have been, I got deck screwed. and Okay, you might have lost the opportunity to talk to your opponent about the game, and that's unfortunate. But you can still recover something by the experience by once some time has passed and you have some perspective saying, okay, what actually happened in the game? And sometimes it might be like, oh yeah, when I Black Joker this thing, that really did just set me way behind. And who knows what would have happened if that if, if that had gone differently. But other times it's like, well, you know, in fact, if I'd done this, my opponent did that, and I didn't really respond, blah, 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 blah. So if you need perspective, take the perspective, but try not to let yourself say that the deck cost you the game. Yeah, I know there's there's been times where I'd play someone, and like afterwards, you know, they say like, oh man, it's like, you know, in, when we were fighting here, it was just, I got bad cards, or you had really good cards, and that's why you won. But in my mind, I'm like, I had like, two to three backup plans like it didn't matter if this failed like i could have failed every single duel in that and i still had ways of scoring points or generating an advantage or just like completely ignoring this or like they'll hyper focus on one thing i'm like this wasn't even important but <laughs> like you said like when they if you catch yourself in that moment and you're going through all these things i mean you kind of cut off any room for argument because it's it's a big task to like try and argue someone back out of that like kind of I guess self-pity mode mm-hmm. and then like spending all this effort to like well no this really happened because like the chances of you can do that are pretty low and even if you succeed it's like very touch and go. Right. I mean studies have been done that show that a rational response, like a fact-based response to untruths is incredibly ineffective at getting people to change their opinion. Mm. right and you really just kind of have to co-op them and so if you're if you're the opposite if you're the winning player and someone's gone into this you really have to judge i I mean as you mentioned oftentimes the best response is just like yeah you know you can't fight the deck right and just just let it go there and whether or not you think that's accurate they're not looking for a rational discussion just shut it off you know agree good game and then you know go next there are people who, after maybe like a minute or a little bit of grousing or, or whatever, if they get a little bit of, of sympathy, are open to other things. And so if you, you know, yeah, yeah, you know, there's rough for you there. I did notice that, you know, this, this and this, something or like when I went around, my goal was this, like, especially if you can put it in terms of not that they did anything wrong, but you were explaining kind of what you were trying to do. Mm-hmm. And the implication might be that oh, you could have responded to this, but you don't need to lay that out, right? It's like, mm-hmm. oh, okay. and then 
yeah, when I saw that, like I went over here and claimed this marker, right? That's just something you can say. And you can leave unsaid, I went over here, you could have responded to it uh, at that moment. And if they're interested in a discussion at that point, they're going to be like, yeah, you know, I didn't go there because I wanted to do this. And that's an opportunity then to talk about the game. But if they're just like, yeah, you know, but I black jokered. And then it's like, okay, well, you black jokered. <laughs> that Okay, hopefully my wife doesn't listen to this, but that, that just kind of reminds me. Because when I was talking earlier about placing that web marker, right? She uh-huh. placed it in base contact with my model. And I was just like, you know, if you place it there, he hasn't activated yet, so I can just remove it. <laughs> and she's like, oh, okay. So she placed it like three inches away. I'm just like, okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> okay. I mean, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just let it happen. <laughs> like, right after I just activate and remove it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so blaming the deck uh, or, you know, I guess not really taking the lesson um, when it's offered. Uh, <laughs> those, those are definitely things that, again, can set you back in the next game. Uh, and, and hey, look, we've all been here. We've all done these things. You're not a terrible person if you've, if you've done some of them or you're not doomed to just always lose in Malifaux. I, I sincerely believe that every player can grow and, and can improve. You know, even the even the strongest players, I think, can improve. Uh, and I know for myself, I'm I'm constantly learning new things about this game, and I think that's really what keeps me coming back to it. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. You always make mistakes, and I and I guess to kind of push back on myself a little, there have been so many games where I forget that Lord Chompyvitz has the Trail of Gore action and just cost <laughs> myself points, <laughs> and it makes me so sad. It is sad because uh, you've seen him just so many times on the so table. Many times. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that'll uh, pretty much do it for for tonight's episode of um, you know why people lose games. Certainly, it was not an exhaustive list. So, if you have other thoughts or opinions about why people lose games, or if you think that we're actually wrong in some of the reasons that we said might cause people to uh, put themselves at a disadvantage, let us know. You know, we um. We play just in one small corner of the globe down here in Los Angeles, but we want to be part of the wider Malifaux community, and that's the main reason we're doing this podcast. So if you have any opinions, you can send us emails, Facebook messages. We have a Discord. You can find us on the Weird forums. You know, Weird now has a Discord where we're on there too, and we would just we'd love to hear from you. We 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 just really enjoy any feedback. We've got you know some voicemails on Anchor. Those are super cool to get too. So yeah, just let us know by by any means. We try to get back to everyone, but if we just forget to, rest assured we saw it, and uh, we do apologize if we forgot or if there was any delay. But we just we're tickled pink anytime we receive any kind of external feedback. If you like to support this show with a, a like or a share, or subscribe that'd be super cool. We're always uh, trying to expand our listenership, uh, and we do have a PayPal and a Patreon. So if you'd like to support the channel in that way, and maybe improve our audio quality or whatever else get Colgan those mole men for that 20 mole men game you know that's super appreciated as well and shout out just a really sincere thank you to anyone who who does or at any point has backed us yeah that just it, it again it means a lot to us that you listened and you enjoyed it but that'll pretty much do it for tonight so thanks for listening everyone night everyone